0: Thank you for downloading the Kol Hadash podcast. Education has always been an integral part of Judaism. The determining factor of a good education often hinges on the quality of a teacher. In our present-day school system, we are continually searching for an effective means of determining a measurement of a good teacher. As Rabbi Shalom explains, that challenge stretches back millennia. We'll take a break from the service for a moment for what I call a learning mode. In a traditional service, you would have a reading from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, as part of every Shabbat celebration. Uh, in fact, you would be encouraged to study the Torah multiple times a week, not only that one time on Shabbat, but of course the limitation to that is that Reading the same book every year, over and over again, and while you can find new insights, I remember when I reread Catcher in the Rye, uh, several years after the first reading, I found something new in it. I still didn't like it that much, but I found something new in it. Well, the same thing is true when you read the Torah, you will find new things, but at the same time, you're limited. You're not reading about Ruth, or Esther, or the adventures of King David, or the lamentations of Ecclesiastes as he faces a life and wonders, is it of justice? Was it all worth it? Those are fantastic pieces of literature and, of course, Jews didn't stop writing and debating even after the Bible was closed. So our sense of Torah, not just as the written books, but in its original root of teaching and of learning, is to go beyond that limited definition of what it means to teach and learn in this space in Jewish life, and to explore more of what it means to be Jewish. In this case, since we're exploring Jewish education, I thought it'd be worth looking at a couple of the sources that have been used to explain how Jews have educated other Jews. We hear a lot about education as a prominent Jewish value, but it's important to explore where that came from and how it was expressed in real, lived Jewish life. After all, we aren't simply what the law says on the books, it's how we live in real life that defines the human experience. So the first passage I wanted to look at is from the Babylonian Talmud in a section called Baba Batra. Uh, that describes the establishment of what might be the first public schools in the world. Verily the name of that man is to be blessed, Joshua ben Gamala, for but for him the Torah would have been forgotten for Israel. And take you back in time. At first, if a child had a father, his father taught him. And if he had no father, he did not learn at all. Because it says, you will teach your sons. Well, but if there's no father to do the teaching. So by what verse do they guide themselves to make a school? Because in Deuteronomy 11, it says, and you, in the Hebrew it's atem, y'all, you plural, you all will teach your children. And they laid the emphasis on the word you all, not just you, the individual father. Then they made an ordinance that teachers of children should be appointed in Jerusalem. So the first school was in Jerusalem. It was a magnet school, I guess. By what verse did they guide themselves? By the verse Kimitzion Because from Zion the Torah goes forth in Isaiah. Even so, the child had a father. The father would take him to Jerusalem, and if he didn't, he wouldn't go up to learn. So it didn't solve the problem. So then they made teachers in each area, and the boys would enter school at the age of sixteen or seventeen. You can imagine how successful that was. To allow them to start learning at sixteen or seventeen. Of course, it didn't work. So finally, they established teachers of young children in every town setting the age at 6 or seven. so this is the beginning of a schooling provided for those that didn't have fathers or for those who from their fathers weren't expert teachers this was an opportunity for them to learn now another passage explores what kind of teachers are useful rabbi said if there are two teachers one gets on fast but with mistakes and the other slowly but without mistakes we appoint the one who gets on fast and makes mistakes, since the mistakes correct themselves in time. But Rabbi Dimi from Nehardea said, we appoint the one who goes slowly but makes no mistakes, for once a mistake is implanted, it cannot be eradicated. Now, which is your preference? <laughs> would you have, if you have to choose between a teacher that goes fast and makes mistakes, or one that goes slowly but doesn't make mistakes, which would you choose? How many would vote for slow? How many would vote for fast? Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, interestingly enough, later on the very same page, the very same rabbi seems to say the opposite of what he said before. Rabbi, the same rabbi, said a teacher of young children, a vine dresser, a ritual slaughterer, a bloodletter, and a town scribe are all liable to be dismissed immediately if they're inefficient. The general principle is that anyone whose mistakes cannot be rectified is liable to be dismissed immediately. Do you understand a blood letter making a mistake? (laughs) hard to rectify that one. Um, Same thing with ritual slaughter. Once it's killed wrong, it's gone. So, in this case, Rabbah says, well, a teacher of young children would make mistakes and so they are liable to be dismissed immediately. Now, you might say that's a contradiction between the Rabbah and the first passage where he says, you pick the one that makes mistakes. And the second one, he says, you don't pick one that makes, you don't keep one that makes mistakes. So now I want you to play rabbi. One of the jobs of rabbis is to harmonize it when it looks like two things are contradictory. It says, don't put this on and put this on. You get to find a way that they're both right. Remember, two people are arguing. You're right. You're right. They can't both be right. You're also right. Okay. <laughs> so now, here are two rabbis saying opposite things. How can you harmonize the two? Of mistakes we're referring to? Any other thoughts? First passage doesn't mention the age of the children. Mm-hmm. So maybe with older children you can get away with it. Okay, very good. This is excellent, excellent pill excellent haircutting. <laughs> what about this? The mistakes he's referring to in the beginning are not ineradicable. He says they make mistakes, but those mistakes are corrected. It's when the teachers make, it's the kind of mistakes that they're making, it's the mistakes that are ineradicable that make the difference. So the teacher of young children could make that kind of mistake, that would be cause, again, how far do you have to go to get fired? Let's say you're a biology teacher and teaching creationism. Is it enough to get you fired in a certain school district in the suburban Chicago? Well, maybe not. (laughs) But that's the question, what kind of mistakes are you making? Now, a generation later, even a thousand years later, there was a whole uh, millennium of lived Jewish experience of trying to live out these teachings as uh, Joshua ben Gamala and um, Rabbah and Rabbi Demi had ordained them uh, in terms of setting up the teachers and uh, schools. So the Shulchan Aruch, which is a code of Jewish law written, in the late Middle Ages, uh, 14th century, um, then was summarized into something called the Kitsur, the abbreviated Aruch, around the 16th century. Um, but it gives you some basic rules for the training of children. And I'll just give you a few examples here. Every father is obligated to teach his son Torah, as it is said, and you will teach them to your children, your children to speak of it. Just as it is a mitzvah the teacher's son, so too it's a mitzvah the teacher's son's son. You will make them known to your sons and to your sons' sons. So there's a sense that there's an intergenerational transmission of knowledge, and not only from one generation, it could be even grandparents to grandchildren. Now the next passage is also fascinating. The teacher must teach the children the entire day and part of the evening to train them to study Torah by day and by night. In the last sentence, the children are not to be interrupted from their learning, even for the purpose of building the Beis HaMikdash, the temple in Jerusalem. That means the Messiah has come, it is time to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, but I've got to finish my homework first. <laughs> now, why would they say that? Because education is more important than a building. Then what? Than a building. Education is more important than a building. Why else might they say that? rabbi's like rabbi learning and temple sacrifices by the kohanim by the priests and the rabbis aren't opposed to it but it's in the distant imaginary mythical messianic future and study is here and now and so it's very important to finish your study here and now because the study here and now according to the rabbis is the key not only to happiness in this life but to haolam to the world to come you are earning points by studying Torah every time you do it. Now the last one is my favorite. You may not give a Jewish child to a non-Jew to instruct him in reading and writing, or to teach him a trade, and needless to say that it is forbidden to give him to a Jewish heretic, because Israel, which is much worse than giving him to a non-Jew, for there is concern that the child may follow in his footsteps. Now, why would they not, why, I mean, I, you can sort of see the the, non, the, the Jewish heretic uh, argument, but why would they not want to give you to a non-Jew to teach these subjects? Other things that infiltrate the teaching. Okay, they may be influenced by their particular religious or uh, ritual or cultural perspective. Cutting off the supply of students. <laughs> That's right. Uh, uh, uh. There's a sense of an insular community here that we teach our own. Remember, the commandment is... Teach your sons, and you shall teach them. That's the atem, which is sort of an us sense as opposed to the outside world. Yeah? <laughs> there, there is, uh, some would have argued, as we'll see, uh, a very deep uh, connection between um, rabbinic Judaism and unionism. <laughs> but uh, in this case, uh, there is definitely a sense that uh, they want to uh, support their own. Um, I mean there is even uh, what some have called the, the kosher racket, or I saw about in an article today, Kosher Nostra. Uh, <laughs> where uh, you have to hire a, a supervisor of your kitchen who is making sure that it is strictly kosher all the way through no matter what you're doing. And you have to pay them to do that. And what they do is they sit in the kitchen and read. Because they check things out once in a while and then the kitchen runs. And they, but they have to, be, every time the building is open, they need to be there. And yeshiva students get this work. Um, So yes, it is a little bit of a uh, full employment uh, model. Um, But I think at the same time, um, it creates a challenge for us, of course, because we wouldn't make this kind of distinction at all. Uh, In fact, we find this kind of distinction objectionable to our way of thinking. Um, After all, we don't put up barriers for people to marry each other. We don't put up barriers for people to work together or to live together or to eat together or to socialize together or to learn together or to learn from each other. It's not a question of where you're from to learn from someone. It's what can they know and how can you teach? So this kind of an ethic of refusing to give Jewish children to non-Jews even to learn how to read and write, even to learn a trade, well, that, that seems to us to be obnoxious. And certainly disqualifying ourselves from teaching would seem to be very problematic. So in the end, when we think about the Jewish value of education, not only the ideal of teach your children these things, we have to ask a few questions that sort of qualify our endorsement of this value. You'll notice, for example, all of the examples of who are being taught in all of these texts are boys. It wasn't for girls. In fact, you'll note in a reading about Rebecca Gratz, it highlighted the fact it was especially girls that were open for education, which itself was somewhat radical in its own way. So it was only for boys. The second is you have to ask what was the content they were teaching? They must learn to study, not mathematics by day and by night, not history by day or by night, or rational thinking or logical positivism. No, they need to learn to study Torah. Torah, Torah. Not the movie. (laughs) So the content is the second question. Yes, it's wonderful to be educated, but if all you're doing is reading the same book over and over again, and dealt, is that really a broad horizon? I mean, this isn't a bachelor's degree. This isn't graduate school. And the third question is, how are they learning? We had it in the song that we just sung. Kometz Aleph all." It was rote memorization. Repeat, repeat, learn the same thing over again. One of the interesting things they found in uh, in studying both the Israeli education system and also the American education system as compared to other countries and territories that score better on standardized tests is that they're not taught to think creatively they're taught to to think with facts and figures and responsively, simply to regurgitate what's been input but not to process and to recreate in a new way and so it helps them get jobs moving numbers around but it doesn't help them invent doesn't help them create something new. So this is, when we think about Jewish education, a case of what I would call a work in progress. I love the fact that Jews have emphasized education. I love the fact that I get to make a living learning and teaching, and that our community is organized in such a way that we've emphasized learning and teaching, and that our leaders are people who are learners and teachers, not charismatic leaders, they're scholars. That's marvelous. Is it perfect? Of course not. Versions in pre-modern times reflected pre-modern values. But this is a case of us drawing on our roots, recognizing for what they are, and drawing inspiration for when they are most important. This podcast was recorded and produced by Ken Burke on behalf of Rabbi Shalom and Kol Hadash in conjunction with Repatriation Studios. I'm Ken Burke, and thank you for listening.